0: Well, happy new year and uh, happy new series day here at Fellowship Bible Church. We're actually going to be starting um, a a brand new study today on a a brand new book of the Bible, at least for us. This is um, one of a handful of books in the Bible that we have never yet preached on in our 40 plus year history uh, here at Fellowship Bible Church, at least not systematically straight through, you know, on, on Sunday mornings, and that is the book of Esther, so, you know, if this is uh, like maybe your first time here, you just dropped in today, or you're uh, dropping in on the live stream, what a great Sunday for you to be here. We, we are making history. Just, just let that soak in for a second. That's pretty amazing. But honestly, we can't, even though, you know, we've never taught this, and it's been, you know, four decades, we can't feel that bad about um, ignoring Esther for as long as we have, because uh, by and large, that, that is what Christians have been doing Throughout the centuries, at least in some significant ways. For example, there was not a single Christian commentary written on the book of Esther until the Middle Ages, all the way from the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, until like 700, 800 AD. That's centuries of, of silence about this book. Uh, John Calvin, you know, who wrote uh, copiously about pretty much every part of the Bible, he never wrote a word about the book of Esther. Or preached a sermon on it in all of his ministry. Martin Luther, one of Calvin's contemporaries, did write about the book of Esther. But he did so to question whether or not it should even be included in the Bible. So much where, where it's pagan excesses is, is, is what he wrote. So, you know, and, and I'll admit, even when we read this kind of as, as modern readers looking back on this, there is a lot about the book of Esther, if you just read through it, that seems um, Weird kind of out of place among the rest of the Bible. For example, uh, famously, when you read through the book, not once is God ever mentioned. Nothing. None of his names, none of his titles, never is, God is just completely absent from this book, seemingly. It's a little weird. Neither is uh, prayer mentioned explicitly in the book. Uh, neither is the temple, uh, nor sacrifices or prophecy or miracles, or any of these other things that you see uh, so so pointedly in other books of the Old Testament. so not only is all that stuff absent from the book, what you have is a lot of I guess what you could call moral ambiguity that's present in the book, and what I mean by that is um, even the good characters when you're when you're reading what happens in the book you 're not entirely sure that everything they 're doing is intended to be portrayed as good uh, or right. We're going to kind of get into this as we go through the series. And then there's also um, some of the people who would stereotypically be bad characters, like like a pagan king who in other historical sources is just portrayed as a ruthless, awful guy. He's kind of one of the heroes of this story, or at least serves to advance the purposes of God's people. So it's kind of like there's some complexity here, morally speaking, not people you just point to and say, these are exemplars, let's imitate them in every single way. And then on top of this, the content of the book really pushes us right up to the edge of some tricky um, philosophical theological issues that are hard to wrap our minds around. The most prominent being, how do God's providence and our free will intersect and and interact? What is the role of men and women in in God's plan? And how does he intend men and women to, to function together? What about judgment of the wicked and violence? There's a lot of blood in this book. You know, I mean, this list could go of, of questions could go on and on, but I'm going to stop listing them now because uh, I've I've got zero intention of answering any of them today, <laughs> not a one. That's kind of that's what the rest of this series is for. It's going to take us uh, to the end of February as we go through the book. But today, uh, our task today is simply this: it is to hear the story of Esther, beginning to end, to hear the whole story. That's it. We absolutely have to do this before we get into the details of the text. In fact, um, when I first mentioned to our friend, one of my former seminary professors, a member here, Jack Wilsey, that we were going to be going and, and doing a series on the book of Esther, his um, one of his concerns was that by you know doing this as a series and breaking up the book of Esther into kind of bite sized, you know, sermon sized chunks of text, that we would lose sight of the whole story, which is, which is a problem, the, w- the way we do things here. Like, think about if you were to take a great movie, something, one of your favorite movies, something you just consider a masterpiece, and you wanted to show someone else how amazing it was, but the way that they wanted to watch it was they wanted to watch it 10 minutes at a time, one day a week, seven days apart for the next eight weeks. Probably the movie is going to lose some of the impact, right? Right? They, they might even miss the point of the movie entirely by watching it in these, you know, segmented, separated sections uh, because they forgot what they watched, you know, three weeks ago or at least one of the key details, you know, from that. Uh, I, I, like, I like how the, the scholar Karen Jobes puts it. She puts it this way. She says, the book of Esther is a story that, like a parable, so one of the stories Jesus told, it makes its point as a whole unit. Boom. Here's the point. Because parables are relatively short and self-contained, they make congenial preaching texts. Like, if we were to preach through Jesus' you know, parable of the Good Samaritan, it takes like a minute and a half to read that story, we can get the whole point, and then we can just kind of teach on that point. It's kind of how stories function. But, because Esther is much longer than a parable, and it's not a parable, it's, it's historical literature, the point it makes is multifaceted and invites deeper reflection. This also makes it difficult to preach Esther because when a manageable sized portion of the text is selected, like one or two chapters as we're going to do in this series, the story as a unit recedes from view and the part tends to lose its connection to the whole. So this is what we want to avoid during our series here over the next eight weeks. Because yes, we are going to take manageable chunks of the story. We are going to delve into these details. We're going to uh, tackle some of these difficult questions uh, head on, even starting next week when we redo the first part of the story. But as we do this, we really don't want to lose sight of the whole. So that's what today is all about. We're going to try to get like a bird's eye view uh, of the whole story, the whole, the, the whole text, so that when we go over the parts over the next few weeks, you can see uh, how they all fit together. So you guys ready? Here's, here's what you need to do. You need to sit back, you need to relax, and you need to listen to a story. All right, here we go. Starting with scene one, the king's feast, the queen's rebellion. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, so, so in the days of Ahasuerus, this is our time marker for our story. In case you don't know when that was, this is about the year 490 B.C., Right? So this is about the same time that in the East, uh, Confucius is wrapping up, writing down some of his sayings in the, in the West. The Greeks are uh, practicing one of the first forms of democracy. So this is a lot of, a lot of change uh, going on in the world right now. The Ahasuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces this would be this is telling us which Ahasuerus this is it would be. A man who is better known in other historical sources as Xerxes I, most likely, is is who this is. He was the most powerful man in the world at his time. I mean, look at this map right here. Do you you guys see that? Uh, This is the Persian Empire in 490 BC. Rome wasn't around yet. Really, Greece was not a, a world player. No Alexander the Great yet. Persia was the global power of its day. And from India all the way to Ethiopia, King Ahasuerus ruled the world. So hopefully that gives you a little context for what's going on. This is the most powerful man in the world when we're talking about the king in this story. Verse 2. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, this would be the capital, in the third year of his reign he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. Now right away you should also notice another thing which makes this, this, um, this story weird among other books of the, the, the Old Testament is that it doesn't take place in Israel. It, it takes place way outside. All the action um, takes place way over here. That, that first blue arrow is pointing uh, there at, at Judah right on the coast and this is pointing to Susa. Some 700 miles to the east is where this story takes place. So why is this? Why do we have a, a story about the Israelites taking place way outside of Israel? Well a lot of background I could get into, but in a word, exile. Over, you know, those nearly 1,000 years but, uh, over the, b- between the conquest of the, the promised land and then the story right here, God's people, as you read in the Old Testament, they had just uh, persistently, consistently rebelled against God. They disobeyed. They, they worshipped idols. They broke the covenant that they had made with God. And as a result, after tons and tons of warnings from many different prophets, God allows a foreign kingdom, actually two of them in two different stages, to take the people of Israel and the people of Judah and take them into exile, to remove them from the land, which is a really big deal, uh, a, a, a tragedy uh, for them. That's in, in, in a nutshell, that is why there are Jews in Susa right now, the Persian capital. Now, I should also say that at the time of Esther, many of the Jews... Uh, who had been taken into exile, had actually returned to Israel at this time. But many had also stayed. So you can read the stories of, of the Jews who had returned in Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, and Haggai. I know our, our small group actually just went through those books last year. It's pretty cool. But right now, this is about those Jews who had remained in exile for whatever reason. All right, so that The story doesn't get into that here. You can kind of speculate, but here they are. Those Jews are the focus of the story here, the ones who did not return. Verse 10. On the seventh day of this big feast, I mean, seven days of feast, I mean, it's, it's a huge feast. When the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded his eunuchs, they're all listed there, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. So he wants to, here he's got the big party, all his friends, he wants to show off his trophy wife. But, and boom, right here, right away, here's the first conflict in the story. Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. So, the king now he's really upset that his wife doesn't want to do what he wants her to do. So, he, he takes counsel with all of his advisors who basically uh, say to him, I guess, the advice you would give to the parent, to someone who's a parent of toddlers, which is, hey, if you let them get away with this, who knows what they're going to be getting away with next. So, the king divorces, Queen Vashti, and he decides to find another queen. All of this, it is mere setup and, and prelude to, Scene to, Esther's ascension. It's what really all of these things in these first two chapters are trying to, to, to show us. Is, it's, it's to try to explain how this orphaned girl from a conquered, displaced people group, comes to sit on the throne in the Persian capital next to the most powerful man in the world. How on earth does that happen? Well, let's read chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. And you kind of get this sense, he's kind of like, oh man, what did I do? Then the king's young men who attended him said, we've got an idea. Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all of the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Verse 5. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives. So there you've got, you know, the the background of the exile. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, so Mordecai's cousin, for she had neither father nor mother. She's an orphan. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died... Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken. Notice the passive voice there. She was taken into the king's palace. Things go well for Esther there. She conceals um, her Jewish identity, which is um, why she fits in so well. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus. The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head. And he made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. So I mean, this is a huge honor for her right here. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces. That's that huge whole kingdom. Everybody gets a tax break. And he gave gifts with royal generosity. So, I mean, how great would it be if the story just ended right here? And the the book of Esther was a really short book in the Bible, right? The no-name girl becomes the queen. It's ultimate uh, rags-to-riches-to-glory type of story. Like, it reminds me of Princess Diaries, too, except just a little bit more exotic, you know? Well, sadly, this is not where it ends. All is well until we hit the next scene and realize that the real story has not even yet begun. So here we are, scene three, enter the villain. All those first two chapters were just set up for this. Chapter three, verse one. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Like, Why aren't you bowing down like everybody else? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to him, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. So there's there's more than just uh, interpersonal stuff going on here. It's because he was a Jew. They single that out. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, again, because it's not just interpersonal at this point. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. All the Jews throughout the whole kingdom. Now remember how big the kingdom was at this time. The kingdom of Persia stretched all the way from India to Greece down to Ethiopia. I mean, it, this is the whole ancient world at this time, basically. If Haman gets his wish to destroy all the Jews and all the kingdom of Ahasuerus, that's, that's pretty much all Jews everywhere including those who returned from the exile, who are back in Jerusalem right now, rebuilding the, the city and the temple and, and all of that. They, they are at risk too. And it seems like Haman is going to get his wish. Haman persuades the king. I mean, very easily, the king's just like, yep, okay, I'll do this, to write this kill order for this, this whole group of people. That gives us a little insight into, you know, Xerxes' character, to be effective in one month's time. And just like that, The very existence of God's already conquered, already scattered and displaced people, their very existence is threatened. Annihilation is is what is at stake here. Who's going to step in to save them? This is the true conflict in the book of Esther. And this is what brings us to scene four, really the critical scene of this story, Esther's courage. Chapter four, verse one. When Mordecai learned... All that had been done. So he hears about this law. Mordecai tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes. And he went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. And then Mordecai sends a message to Esther and basically says, hey, you're the king's wife. Like, can't, can't you do something about this? To which Esther replies, verse 11, uh, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death, except for the one to whom the king holds out, the golden scepter, so that he may live. But as for me, I haven't been called into this king for these 30 days. In other words, she's saying, you know, uh, no, Mordecai, I can't do anything about this. The king doesn't hold office hours or, you know, keep a suggestion box in, in the palace lobby. And if I go to him presumptuously, uh, unsummoned uh, just, and just start telling him, here's how you should rule your kingdom, O king, I could get killed. I mean, look what happened to the last queen who showed uh, some initiative and assertiveness to, to King Ahasuerus. Where is, where is she right now? Ahasuerus is ruthless. You know, that could be me next, is what she's saying. To which Mordecai replies this, and this is one of the key, really core theological statements in the book. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from some other place. Where Where does Mordecai get that confidence? Kind of raises that question. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this, when everything is on the line for God's people. Then Esther told the messengers, they're all listed there, to reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Can you feel the tension in all this right now? Yeah, she could die, but what happens if Esther dies? There's, there's a lot hanging on this right now. We're getting close to the climax of the story. Chapter 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes, stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance of the palace. So can you notice the narrative is slowing down here, giving us details, telling us this is, this is important, what's about to happen here. And when the king saw Esther standing in the court... Big pause here, I imagine, when the ancient Jews would read this story in the synagogues or to their families, you know, because this is the moment of dramatic tension in the book. When the king sees Esther standing there, unsummoned, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, "'What is it, Queen Esther?' What is your request? It shall be given to you even to half of my kingdom. Wow, so there it is, right? I mean, this is the golden opening that Esther was waiting for. You could drive a semi-truck through that opening that the king just made for Esther. I'll give you half my kingdom. He says, ask away, it's yours. But what does Esther do? She invites the king to a dinner party. That's right, a dinner party little intimate affair with just the queen, the king, and Haman as the third wheel, and what this does is it draws out this, this, this moment of tension for the next two chapters, you know, and next two, we still don't have the, the big conflict resolved yet, and there's, a, in between these two chapters, there's a very comical scene uh, where the king can't sleep at night, and he has people read him old stories, and then he asks Haman how, what he should do to honor someone, and Haman thinks, oh, that's me, but actually, it's Mordecai, and the, the, the king hat, you know, Haman gives the king all this advice for how to honor somebody. Turns out, again, it's Mordecai, and Haman has to lead Mordecai around the city streets on a horse, shouting his praise. Highly comical. What it it shows is that things are starting to turn in this book, even though the moment of tension remains completely unresolved until it culminates at the second banquet between Queen Esther King Ahasuerus and King Haman. And yes, I said second banquet because at that first banquet, the king gives Esther another golden opportunity. What does she ask? She says, well, come with me to a second banquet. And and you know, we as readers at that point, we're just like pulling out our hairs like, what are are you doing, Esther? This law is gonna take effect so soon. Why aren't you asking the king when he gives you all these perfect things? But my mom, uh, if she was here today, she would tell you that it's just the wisdom of getting somebody really well-fed and happy before you ask them anything important. And Esther is showing a lot of savvy here in, in doing this. Anyways, the second banquet finally arrives, and finally we get to see Esther's courage on full display. Chapter 7, verse 1. So, the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, again, fat and happy, the king again said to Esther, this is the third time now, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, finally, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we've been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Again, all throughout the provinces. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, And again, you've got to imagine, this is just so full of drama at this little intimate dinner party a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. And she's, you know, just pointing right across the table to him. And Haman, who's, you know, probably spitting out his wine at, at this point, was terrified before. The king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went out into the palace gardens. I mean, he can't even control himself. He just storms out of there. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And, and this again, it gets comical. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, just as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? So if his anger was at like an eight and a half or a nine, I don't even know where it is at this point. As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance to the king, said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. How convenient. How convenient. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Story over, right? This is another place where, uh, where you just wish that boom, the story could have ended. But no, uh, the villain is dead, but there are quite a few of comp- complications that still remain, specifically the fact that Haman's law is still in place, even though he's dead. That would be the law calling for the massacre of every Jew in the kingdom. So, as King Ahasuerus explains right after this, he can't just, you know, snap his fingers and revoke a law. When the king writes a law in the Persian kingdom, it's pretty much, it's written in stone. But what he can do, and what he does do, again, at Esther's request right after this, showing more courage and initiative on her part, is he writes another law, empowering the Jews to arm themselves and defend themselves against anyone who attacks them, presumably without the Persian army intervening. So they're allowed to defend themselves. And, and um, the law is made, the, new, the word of the new law, it's sent out on swift horses throughout the whole kingdom. So you kind of picture like, you know, the Pony Express going all the way to India, to Israel, you know, all over the place. Chapter 8, verse 17, we read this. And in every province and in every city, again, from India to Ethiopia, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, There was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Again, another place where I I wish the story just ended right here, but it doesn't. Because even with this law in place, thousands upon thousands of people attack the Jews throughout the whole kingdom. And the Jews in turn kill thousands and thousands of them. Over 75,000 people killed in chapter nine alone is what we read uh, in the narrative. So it's a very bloody, uh, violent uh, ending to this story. We also then get a few paragraphs here toward the end that is um, that detail the establishment of the Feast of Purim, which is um, the Jewish feast that celebrates all of the book, the, the events here in the book of Esther. And then finally, we arrive at scene five, the conclusion, and I'm just going to read the final chapter of this book in its entirety because it's only three verses. Here's chapter 10. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, so no more tax breaks, no more stimulus checks. And all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and, and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank... To King Ahasuerus. And he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. So here it is, finally, our happy ending. The people who were threatened with annihilation are now wealthy and favored in the, the mightiest kingdom on the planet. You know, many people were declaring themselves to be Jews, they wanted to be this people group. And then the guy who was wearing sackcloth and crying out in the middle of the city, he is now clothed with royal robes. He is second only to the most powerful man on the planet. The end. Any questions now that you've heard the whole story? I hope so. I, I mean, it was very difficult for me today when I was, you know, when I was preparing this over the last week just to keep this dialed into the bare bones of the plot because there's so much depth and so many things that we just had to uh, skim over and so many themes that are gonna be uh, just a delight to unpack over the next um, uh, several weeks. So I'm very much looking forward to going back through this book slowly. I know that, that Bruce is as well. We've had many interesting conversations in the church office about this already. A good thing for you all to do over the next week, if you can, is try to actually read through the text for yourself. To just read through uh, the book of Esther. Because again, there's no substitute for that. And it'll reinforce the larger context of the story for you before we get into the details. Maybe even raise some more questions that we can help answer. I know that Debbie Roby has already read this book three times in preparation for the study, just recently. So she is setting the pace for all of you. Be like, be like Debbie, if you can. But as we close out today, what I'd like us to do is just to consider one question before we wrap things up today. One question that you can be thinking about over the weeks to come, which is, how could 2021 be different for you if you started off with the book of Esther? Do you know what I'm saying here? How, how could this year to come be different for you if you spend the first two months in this story, two months of, of, of reading this story, of thinking about this story, of coming here on, on Sundays and, 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 and letting this story um, sink into your heart and, and shape your imagination, how, how would that change you? How would that possibly change the trajectory of this next year for you? How would that change us as, as a community, as we read and we, we, we think about this together as, as a church? You know, I think we might pray differently in this next year if this was the case. We might um, pray with more frequency, with more urgency. I think we might think differently about the things that um, stress us out, things that are out of control. I think we might worry differently or worry about uh, different things altogether. I think we might act differently in situations that require courage from us or boldness. Those times when we need to take initiative for what is right and for what God wants. I think we might worship differently at the end of all of this with a, with a deeper appreciation for what God has done for us in Jesus and how the story of Esther points us forward to that. I just think we might walk through this entire year differently and, and better if we allow the God who is revealed in this story, even though he's seemingly absent, he is there. This is his word. If we allow the God who is beautifully revealed in this story, if we allow him to become the basis of our courage, our confidence, and our hope, even in our exile, even in our times of sackcloth and ashes, you know what I'm saying? This is why, why I'm just so excited for us to go through this story together as a church at the start of a new year, because yeah, you know what? We are, we're a long way from Persia many thousands of miles. And we are many, many years removed from 490 BC here in Tacoma, Washington, uh, 2021. But the God of this story is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he has given us this story in his word for such a time as this. What a blessing that is for us to go through together. Pray with me, please. Father, we do thank you for your word. The, the treasures and the riches that are contained are, are more than we can grasp. So we ask for the help of your spirit to open our hearts and to open our imaginations to, um, to not only what you did uh, for Esther and for your people back then, but the ways that you are actively superintending and, and controlling and bringing all things to our good, as you promise in your word, right now, right here. We thank you for your sovereign care, Father. We thank you for your salvation, which you accomplished for us in Jesus. Salvation over over death, over sin, over all the things that hold us captive, even when it seems as if there is no hope. You bring a beautiful ending to everyone who trusts in you. So we thank you for that, Father. And we thank you for the book of Esther. May you um, please bless our study over the next several weeks. In Jesus' name, amen.